Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed this message in our current series. I have had the privilege of getting to walk through some of these stories with people in advance to interview them for these videos. And one of the things that struck me, we've talked with a lot of people, and some of them you've seen on video, and some you'll get to see online through social media. One of the things that struck me is that I had a lot of people come and say, yeah, I'd be willing to do that, but I don't really know if I have much of a story. And what we've found is when you start asking questions, people about their life, not all stories have big dramatic moments or big reveals, but we really do believe that everyone has a story. You start asking questions, you get to see this before and after because we know And we've gotten to see that when we encounter Jesus, he transforms us. Everyone has a story because the trajectory of our story changes when we encounter Jesus Christ. Sometimes in small ways, some in large, and we don't always know what the trajectory would have been, but we know this. When we meet Jesus, the person of Jesus, he transforms us. And it changes our lives. It changes our story. Everyone has a story. And today we have a special story for you from a member of our church, Dr. Dick Yu. So before we continue worshiping together, I just want you to sit back and enjoy this story from our friend and family member, Dr. Yu. My name is Dick Yu, and uh, I'm from uh, Falmouth. I'm a professor of mechanical and ocean engineering, um, and I'm also chair professor of engineering. My wife, Eva, and I, we've been with Cape Cod Church for 30 years almost. I went to school in in Southeast Asia, and after high school, a big change in my life, I came over here, actually, to Cambridge, Massachusetts to go to college. At first, like, first year at MIT, I sort of knew what I have to do. I have to study really hard. I was very curious, very excited. It's, It's really literally a child in a, in a candy store, toy store, right? Unlimited, all you can play, all you can eat. In this case, it was all you can learn. So my first phase, first year at MIT was very much just go-getter, right? Um, in a very bad way almost, like very arrogant. I don't have time to talk to people. If I met someone, you know, my first thought was, the guy's not smart, he's, or, you know, it's not some terminology I use. I haven't used it for 50 years. It's like low IQ, high IQ, medium IQ, you know? And you just walk away from that. Oh, come on, that's easy stuff, you know, right? So this is my freshman year. So if you had met me then, you would not have wanted to talk to me. I'm absolutely obnoxious, right? Self-centered, not because I hate them. It's because they're not even in my mind. You know, they're like, I mean, I, I, I would look through them, you know, and I walk down the hallway. And I walk down the hallway like speed walking because I'm going to the next class or to the library or to the lab. So that was my first year. And I began to read the Bible. I actually didn't read the whole Bible end to end. I was just reading the Gospels. And something really profound happened. I was trying to find some answers, like what is life is about and so forth. What I found were not answers, not, not in the simple sense. What I found was a person was Jesus Christ. And, you know, it makes me like, I mean, even now I get emotional thinking about, you know, 
he's so incredible. I'll just give you an example. Like growing up in China, right, or in anywhere of the world, right, people who are powerful exert the power and extract the whatever they could because of that. People who are wealthy do the same thing, right? In Chinese history, the emperors or the, the officials, Jesus is so powerful. He made everything. He is God. But then he didn't exert that. He is so humble. There is nothing more attractive than love. I mean, even today, to me, right? If love is so attractive, and he is love, and it's so attractive, like the short form is that you know I read the Bible, and I fell in love with Jesus. So one of the things that happened was I slowed down, you know. So I finished all my degree requirements in two years, and the third year. I went and took a bus to Wellesley and took classes,、um, took art history because I wanted it's beautiful. I just wanted to enjoy that art and things like that. So it's very that's sort of very、uh, counter MIT cultural, right? But a lot of the stress was gone. And in graduate school,、uh, I became very active in in the church community,、um, in inner city.、Um, Ran like summer programs, so I was spending a lot of time not at MIT, right?、Um, so if someone had asked me at that time, "Hey, the way you're going, maybe you won't even get a PhD. You know, you're so distracted," I would have said, "Yeah, that's fine then, if that's how it is, right?" I actually did quite well, and I finished,、uh, but I took a long time compared to my undergraduate days, you know.、Uh, but the long time was good, you know, and I think in many ways. Uh, I become a better researcher because of graduate school years. It's not all about just studying and regurgitating the information and quickly get an answer. It's more about going deeper and sort of like、um, I became sort of like willing to go after the sublime, the beautiful, and to chase it out. You know,、um, it's not dissimilar to following Jesus today. Looking back, I could say pretty much. I cannot think of anything about my life that is not fundamentally changed. Anything.、Uh, my students would come and ask me, or I would share, and my like, Christian students, you know, and I would share about like nothing is left unchanged, and they would say, "Really? You tell me. Do you do calculus differently?" And they thought it was like a you know like a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is not calculus is calculus. But with true honesty, I told them, "No." I do calculus totally differently. It's about love. Remember, I told you that love is very attractive, right? It's about love. So the reason I can say with honesty that I do calculus differently is because I wanted to love that present moment, and God had put this calculus problem in front of me in that present moment. So I want to do it well, do it with love, to sort of pour into it. At the end of the day. It's only the loving part that actually remains. Well, good morning. Yeah, what a good. So I have so enjoyed the stories and the people who've been willing to share them. So I just want to thank Dick. Would you help me thank Dick for sharing his story with us this morning?
Dick and Eva uh, have been some of our closest friends the past 30 years, and our kids have, we've sort of watched our kids grow up together, and uh, I've, I've heard his story enough that I feel like I could tell it, but I have to be honest to you, when I heard that piece of it, I thought back to when we first met, and I wondered if you thought high IQ, medium IQ, or low IQ. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was, I was, but then I remembered you left that part of your life behind you, so I was, I was sort of, I was sort of relieved um, by that, so, whew. Man, uh, stories are so are so beautiful. And here's what we've said as a church. We want to help people discover a full life with God. And so when you hear these stories, you're hearing the stories of lives encountering Jesus and becoming fuller because of it. Our vision is that the end of this, we would see people live fully. That's our hope, our vision, our dream. And so when we, when we see these, these stories in all their varied forms, from the dramatic to the simple, we see people living fully because they've encountered Jesus. You see, here's what we really believe that behind every story is the story. Right? That, I mean, that's what this is all about. Behind, behind everyone's story is the story, the singular story of God's work in this world. And when we tell stories, we're just, we're just unwrapping that. We're just unwrapping this, this picture of how God is at work in, in people's lives and the story of God at work in the world. We've said in the past, and maybe it's good to go back and begin there, that you could take the story of God's work in the world and you could, you could break it into four chapters. And Christians have been doing this for, for years now. It's, it's an easy way to understand the story of Scripture. Four chapters in the Bible, four chapters in the story of God's work in the world. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, God made everything. The fall, how sin entered the world and things went wrong. Horribly, horribly wrong. Redemption. How Jesus came into the world to redeem us, to begin to set everything that was wrong to right, and then restoration. The process that God has already begun in rebuilding his creation that will one day be complete in a time and a place we call heaven. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. But over the years, here's what happens. We, we reach into the bag where those four chapters are and we latch on to what might seem easiest or to make more sense. And, and over time, we, get, we miss pieces 
And historically, this has happened with some regularity. For instance, for many years, there have been Christians and churches that reached in and just grabbed a hold of chapter 4. Restoration. We're going to make the world a better place. They used to call this the, the social gospel. And, and many of our, our, our mainline or more liberal churches have latched onto this idea of restoration. We're going to make the world a better place. Lofty ideal, but somewhere along the line, the ideal came that we could do that without a divine Jesus. And we don't really need to talk about sin. We left out chapters 2 and 3 to just lift up chapter 4. The revivalist movement was really a reaction against this. We were like, no, you, you can't really genuinely restore anything without the story of the fall, without, without the story of redemption in Jesus Christ. And so revivalists would come along like John Wesley or John Whitfield later on or in our present generation, people like Billy Graham, and they would say, listen, we are broken. We're sinners. We need a Savior. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, we just latched onto them. The fall and redemption. The fall and redemption. Because without the redemption of Jesus Christ, how is there any true Restoration. Somewhere along the line, we somehow decided chapter 1 wasn't that important. In many ways, what we've been saying through this series is that chapter 1 is where everything in the story comes to make sense. How God created everything, or more importantly, why? I mean, that's the story of, of creation. The story of creation is not how, God. We get so caught up in the mechanics of Genesis 1 and 2 and when did it happen and was this the scientific? That's not the story of it. The story is who created everything and why. I mean, it's why. Why did God create us? And all through this project and all through this year, we've emphasized one thing. God wants to give you life as a gift. Or as Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. You see, chapter one is the story of why God came. It's that he created you because he wanted to give you life and life to the full. Now here's why that matters. Because until you know the why, you won't trust the what. Now, we've told the story this way. And I, if I come up with a better illustration, I'll use it. But I haven't yet. It's like if, if you've got a, a nice car. And you, you're making big payments on it. And it's your dream car. And you, you love that car. Some of you don't love your car. So this illustration won't help you. But... You know somebody who loves their car, right? They Saturdays are set aside for washing. They love their car. I'm a car guy. I love cars. And I come up to you, and I'm a stranger. I'm a stranger. And I say, hey, give me your keys. 
I tell that to some people. They oh, pastor, I'd let you have. You're a liar. You would not. Even if it was your pastor, you would say, no, you have your own car. Right? If I just come up to you, a stranger comes and says, hey, give me the keys to your car. It's my car. Those are my keys. I'm making the payments. I get to drive it. And for many people in this generation, that's what the gospel feels like because nobody's told them about chapter one. Nobody's told them the why of a God who wants to give them life and life to the full. We've just rushed right to chapter two. You're a sinner who needs redemption. And they're like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And why should I give the keys to my life to Jesus? But if we change the story a little bit, the story of you and your car and your, you've been at a party and you've had a, a little bit too much to drink. And I know that's never happened to anyone, but you know someone, so roll with me, right? And your best friend comes up to you and says, hey, hey, give me the keys. You see, the story changes. I, I mean, I may still be mad and resistant, but somewhere deep inside of me, I know something. I know you only want the keys because you're trying to keep me alive. And that's the story of chapter one of a God who just wants to give you life life to the full and when he comes to us and he says hey give me the keys to your life at first it's those are my keys and it's my life and it's my way and i don't want to give them up the more we listen and the more we see him we fall in love with him and we realize that this jesus just wants to give us life a full But how do you trust? Like, how do you come to trust in this Jesus? How do you trust that this message is true? And how do you trust that the people telling you that are true? That they're authentic? You see, every generation is, is looking. Every generation wants to know. And every generation comes to the story of Jesus and the story of the gospel and the, the work of the church and wants to know, is this authentic? Is this real? Is this, is this, thing, is this thing true? And every generation craves things a little bit differently. And it has to do with where they've come from and how they've come up. And I'll tell you my own view of this. Listen, 30 years ago, when Cape Cod Church got started, we were, we, we were at the, the, the very beginning end of what they call sort of the contemporary church, you know, model. And, and, but, but here's what it was. It was a, it was a story about authenticity, right? There were people and they were looking for authenticity. And frankly, 30 years ago, a, a lot of us were a lot younger, right? We were, and we were those people. We were the, the boomers and the, the Xers and, and, and authenticity in that moment. You know what it looked like? It looked like, well, it, it looked like casual. 
We, we, we would. So all of a sudden, our church is like 30 years ago, you'd all been wearing suits. There's not a suit in the house today. Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen, right? Yeah. The one person wearing a suit is like, oh me, oh me, oh me. <laughs> Forgive us. Just love us. Give us grace, right? You know, we were, because, because there was something about that, 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 that casual that took away the pretense and and then, and then we brought music that connected the, the message from the head to the heart. And that message, that music was for a new generation. And, and, and it's captivated the heart of the church for the last 30 years. And, and we sang those songs and we still sing some of those old songs. And we, we bring them together in that beauty that connects the head to our But 30 years ago, that was a shift and it was a way that we were saying, this isn't authentically true. And, 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 and even how we preach, like how I preach changed, right? Right? We, were, we, were, we were all of a sudden saying, this is how the message is relevant. Let me show you how this story, this book can apply to your life in very practical ways. And that was, that was the story of what happened 30, and 30 years ago. Cape Cod Church was born in this. We're not, we're not moving on from it. It's kind of built into the fiber and DNA of our church. But here's what's happening as we enter into a new era and a new generation, a whole new generation's coming up behind us. And at some point around my age and a little bit older, you start realizing you're not the young folk anymore. And there's a whole new generation. And that generation is looking for authenticity. <laughs> I got news for you. You know, casual dress, great music, and practical, relevant preaching doesn't have the same message it had 30 years ago. It's, it's not that it's gone away. It's just that a new generation is saying, I want to know if that's true. Even more than that, I want to know if you are true. And in many ways, the five commitments that we've been talking about are five commitments built around authenticity. They're built around the ways that we say, this is genuinely true. Look, this is who we are. So when we say, when we say that we're here for the one, we're saying this is how we welcome outsiders and those who aren't there yet. When we say that we are a community that becomes family. We're saying, listen, this, this, this whole thing here, it's not an event that you attend. It's not message content that we consume. We're saying that it has the bond of family, of relationship. We say we're going to tell the whole story of life. We're, we're, we're saying, listen, we want to take chapters two, three, and four, but we want to begin in chapter one, and we want to tell you what he wants to give you, the gift of life and life to the full. And, and I think maybe most importantly, the purest, surest, sign of authenticity for this coming generation is generosity. They want to know, do you mean it? 
And they'll know by how you give. How you give generously for those across the street and around the world. And as a church, we have radically leaned into that and said, we are going to make this the measure of what God is doing at his church. How we give generously so others can have life and life to the full. But I said there were five, right? We've only gotten through four. That was all introduction. It's only one service. I get to preach twice as long, right? Nervous laughter ensues. You know what the fifth is? Parties. We, we said it in this. We said that we want to create, cultivate a culture of celebration that reflects heaven. Or in a word, parties. I know it sounds so frivolous, doesn't it? Parties. What kind of church prioritizes parties? We do. <laughs> Welcome to Cape Cod Church. I mean, listen, the word gospel means good news. And if it's good news, where's the party? Come on, listen, why should the church be full of long faces? Come on. So, if you think about it, the Bible is a story of parties. Now, let, me, let me read to you uh, from Exodus. Exodus chapter 23. It says, this is, this, this is God establishing the, the, the culture of his people in Israel. And here's what he says. Each year, you must celebrate three festivals in my honor. First, celebrate the feast or festival of unleavened bread. For seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast, just as I commanded you. Celebrate this festival annually at the appointed time in early spring in the month of Abib, for this is the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. He says there are going to be three parties, three celebrations. And over time, it grew to seven. And all of them had this in common. All of them were celebrating how God had delivered his people and given them life. And all of them, you got to take a day off. There you go. In fact, some of them, you got to take seven days off. That's a party. And you'd start the party on the first and a party on the end. Seven. Isn't it funny? We can remember there's 10 commandments, but we didn't know there were seven parties. <laughs> seven. And it didn't end in the Old Testament, of course. We're not living in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus maybe summed it up most beautifully in Luke chapter 15, one of my favorite chapters. I was going to, I could have preached out of it again, but they told me I've preached on the prodigal son too much this year already. I just I love this story, right? This story of a father with two sons and that son who's young and impetuous and takes his inheritance and runs off and makes a mess of his life and 
comes crawling back to his father. He's got nothing left and he just wants to be a slave. Just, just put me to work. <laughs> put me to work in your fields. And the father. The father greets him, runs off the porch, runs down the road, wraps his arms around him, celebrates his son. Remember what he said? Luke 15, 25. He was lost, and now he's found. And then in some of the greatest words in the Bible, so the party began. I told you, Jesus loves parties. Why? Verse 10 tells us the context of that. Here's what it says. In this same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. When even one of us comes back to him, humbles ourselves, surrenders our life, and says yes to Jesus Christ, just one. All of heaven rejoices. The dead Come back to life. Hmm. You see, Jesus loves parties, and who, who doesn't? Who doesn't love a good celebration? A lot of you know my wife, uh, Tammy, has been a baker for years, and she, she runs this bakery out of her home, and she does weddings and birthdays and celebrations. And uh, This year, for a number of reasons, with her recovery and care for a mother, for her mother, um, she decided to retire and close it down. And I got I to gotta tell you, we're both grieving <laughs> for different reasons. <laughs> right? We're grieving. <laughs> Here's why I'm grieving. For the last 15 years, our house has had bulk chocolate chips everywhere <laughs> and peanut butter. If you didn't know this, peanut butter and chocolate chips are magic. It's, it's like homemade Reese's. It's just, I call that chunky peanut butter when you just drop the chocolate chips in and just grab a spoon and praise the Lord. We should, you know, I'm thinking of it, we should do a party like that with just chocolate chips and peanut butter. People would come for that, right? I found that that's not why Tammy's grieving. Her grieving is different. So one of the things we've discovered over these past weeks is she's been kind of in the process of closing down and talking to clients. Is how, how much she enjoyed being a part of people's celebrations. I mean, it's the greatest job on earth, right? All you do is help people party, and it's cake. Who doesn't love cake? If you don't love cake, you need Jesus, right? I mean, there's just like, it's like, you may not eat it all, but you gotta love it. I mean, there's just like, and from, from young couples all excited about getting married, coming in and tasting their potential cake and choosing their flavors to the day of the wedding and setting up the cake and then a little bit later they'll call and they'll say we're having a baby would you do the gender reveal cake 
Do you know, do you know, this has nothing to do with my message, but do you know, she would often know what they were having before they knew. The doctor would send her stuff and she would put it in a cake and it was amazing. I mean, how, how amazing is it to be a part of this? And then that little child's first birthday and second birthday and she's been doing this for years and getting to celebrate this. Who doesn't love to be a part of a celebration? Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, listen, you have so much to celebrate in the life I've given you. Pause. Take a break and celebrate. In fact, the first celebration in the Bible starts in the very first pages. Here's what it says. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse 1, it says, So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. Then it says this, On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all his work. This is the first party. By the way, this is what we do. There's there's a pattern in these few verses that is the pattern of the church when we come together on a Sunday. He finished the work of creation. You, You see, we need this right here, this gathering, as a reminder of who the creator is. You see, that's what worship does. We we gather together, and in this place together, opening his word, singing his songs, we are reminded that there is a God, and I'm not him. I hope that's not news. There's a God, and I'm not him, and he is in control. Here's what it says next. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. (laughs) Oh, just a good reminder. We all need a pause to breathe. Here's what I'm saying. If God needed to take one day or wanted or chose to take one day out of seven to rest, you probably don't have a good excuse for not doing the same. And that's what we do. We come together in this place and we pause and we breathe and we remember Verse 4 finishes with this. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. This is the account. I think there's something else that happens in, in a party. 
in a celebration, in a gathering like this, we take an account. We pause. We remember who God is. We rest. And then we begin to take an account of what God is doing and how he's been faithful and the story that he's writing. You see, that's what we've been doing with all of these, with all of these stories. We, 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 we pause and we take an account. Like even in watching someone else's story, we're taking an account and we see ourselves in that story and we remember the story of what God is doing in our lives and we're celebrating, we're pausing, we're breathing, we're remembering who he is and we're celebrating his work. We're taking an accounting of God's work in our lives. What a beautiful gift. Let me give you one accounting that we can celebrate together. Every week for this past month, the past four weeks of this series, we finish by inviting people to say yes to Jesus Christ. And in the last four weeks, 24 of you have said yes to Jesus Christ. Yeah. You see, there, there's, not a, there's not an easy way to put that up on screen. That story is being written, and it's, it's beautiful. The story of God's work in our life. The story of how God comes to us and says, hey, hey, give me the keys. Would you give me the keys to your life? And sometimes we're like, I'm not giving you the keys to my life. It's my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. I got it. I got it. I don't need. I got it. I got it. But he's persistent. Book of Revelation says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's like, he's like, knock, 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 knock. He doesn't go away. He's just knocking, 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 saying, would you give me the keys to your life? And there's not a better way for us to finish this series in this day than with one last invitation to you. Maybe you've just been sitting there holding on to the keys of your life while Jesus Christ has been knocking, knocking, knocking. Maybe you were afraid, like, like a lot of us were, that he just wanted to take something from me. But maybe over the weeks, in the stories, in the scripture, you've come to see a Jesus who wants to give you life and life to the full. And in that beauty, you found one that you can trust and say yes to. If so, I'd like to finish this by praying with you and giving you a chance to say yes to him. Would you bow with me? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, our lives are so hurried. When do we have even a minute to catch our breath and to hear 
the still small voice of God's Spirit speak to us and invite us. Give me the keys to your life. If you're ready to do that, say yes to him. I invite you to pray with me right now. There's no magic words that you pray. It's a prayer of faith from your heart, of surrender, of embracing by faith Jesus Christ once and for all. That's you. I invite you to pray something like this. Dear God, I hear you. And I believe in you. Jesus Christ, I trust you. And I give you keys to my life. I say yes to your gift of forgiveness, mercy. I believe you died on a cross so that I could have new life, life to the full. And I want that. I accept it today. Thank you for your gift of life. Help me now to live a life fully for you. In Jesus' name, amen.